Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 29, verses 1 to 3, and verses 10 to 11. Jacob got to his feet and set out for the land of the Easterners. He saw a well in the field in front of him, near which three flocks of sheep were lying down. That well was their source for water, because the flocks drank from that well. A huge stone covered the well's opening. When all of the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the well's opening, water the sheep, and return the stone to its place at the well's opening. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his uncle, and the flock of Laban, Jacob came up, rolled the stone from the well's opening, and watered the flock of his uncle Laban. And Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Katie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 4, 4 through 7, and 28 through 29. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan, Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? The Gospel of the Lord. Would you remain standing as we pray? Gracious Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds, open our eyes and our ears, that we would behold the glory of the face of Jesus Christ, that we would hear his voice to us, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would meet with you through the scriptures today. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Glenn Packiam. I get to serve here as the pastor at New Life Downtown. Uh, we're launching this new series today, and it's got me thinking about encounters that left a mark on your life. Do you remember maybe growing up when you met a hero or a celebrity or a figure that, that, it, that you had a profound encounter with them and it marked you? I remember at eight years old meeting Winnie the Pooh. 
And uh, my, my family, you know, we were living in Malaysia, and my parents had kind of set aside uh, this, this chance for my sister and I to take us over to visit America and to go to Disneyland in California, and it was this great highlight. And, uh, and we got there, and you know, you see the characters walking around and all of that. And then it was toward the end of what had been a really wonderful long day, but I'm eight, and all eight-year-olds by the end of the day, especially a day like that where you're overly, you know, stimulated by all the sights and sounds, you're kind of at an emotionally fragile place, to put it mildly. And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, there's this person that comes up from behind me, and I can't see them, but all of a sudden, he goes, boo! And I turn around, and it's Winnie the Pooh, but it freaked me out! I don't know if I, was, if I cried or anything like that, but I thought, look, you shouldn't do that. Number one, that's Tigger's job, not Pooh. I mean, everybody knows that. Pooh doesn't scare people, right? And, and, and secondly, what are you doing to a kid, you know? Now, I, and maybe you have different stories of meeting a, a mall, a shopping mall Santa, or whatever the case might be, but there are once in a while these moments where you meet someone and you think, wow, I'll never forget that encounter. This is a series that we're beginning today on the encounters that people had with Jesus, with the Son of God. And they're told to us in, in, in the gospel stories, but particularly in John's gospel, and probably the bulk of the stories that we'll pull from in the series, which will take us, by the way, all the way to the end of, uh, end of November. Uh, the bulk of the stories will come from John's gospel because John has a way of telling us some deeply personal stories of people meeting with Jesus and how life-changing it is for those individuals. But it's also John's gospel that tells us that near the end of it, that Jesus said to his disciples, it's good that I go. I mean, can you imagine having told us all these life-changing encounters that people had with Jesus, and then Jesus says, and it's good that I go. And you sort of think, well, Jesus, well, why? Couldn't, aren't there so many more people who need these encounters with you? And he says, it's good that I go because the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will dwell in you. He'll convict the world of sin. He'll guide you into truth. He'll reveal me. So this is what I want to say to you as we begin the series today. These are not just stories of yesteryear. These are not just stories of, oh, isn't that sweet what Jesus did with so-and-so. These are stories that are meant to awaken a hunger in you for the work of the Holy Spirit today. The work of the Holy Spirit today. Now, some of you, 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 you've never even experienced that. You come to church, you believe in Jesus, you sing the songs, you like the stuff, you meet friends, it's all good and fine. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit is living in you. And because of that, these stories are not just stories for someone else but they're stories of how the Lord wants to work in your life. So as you listen to these stories over the next few weeks, I don't want you to, to, to lean back. I want you to lean forward with expectation. I want you to say, okay, God, how are you wanting to meet with me now? Because if the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, then these are living stories, living encounters, living possibilities for us. And this morning's story to kick off the series is about Jesus and the woman at the well. 
And the story is found in John 4. We heard part of it read to us already this morning. But let's revisit this. And I want to, I want to point out some things to you that maybe you have not heard before. Uh, many times when this story is, is taught, uh, it's taught with the, the impression that this is a sinful woman or a dirty woman, a woman who's promiscuous and has made all these mistakes. And I would like to reframe that for you. And I think if we step back into the world of the first century, you'll actually see this woman differently, maybe even see yourself in her story, and then you'll see Jesus differently. It says here in verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He actually didn't have to go through Samaria. Many Jews would do everything that they could to avoid Samaria, but Jesus chose to go there to find her. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, and so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone to the city to get some food. And the Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And John says, parenthetically, Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with one another. Now, this is just the setup. And in the first few verses, John is a masterful storyteller. I mean, this is an opening that is worthy of Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. John is setting the scene here for an epic encounter between an unlikely character and the Son of God. Now, I want us to pay attention because some of these details are going to flip by us and we're like, I, I, I missed that. I didn't even catch that. I, I, I didn't realize that. So let's start with a, a question. Who were Samaritans? Who were Samaritans? Why is it remarkable that Jesus went through Samaria? Samaria is not just Samaria. A little preacher joke for you. <laughs> Wait for it. There it is. Samaria is, has a history. It has a backstory. Now, you may or may not know this about the Old Testament story. Maybe you tried to read through some of these stories and it got lost. Let me, let me kind of boil it down for you. At some point after David and then Solomon and then his other son or another Solomon's son, the, kingdom of, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. They had their own sort of... Uh, uh, civil war, and the, you, not a war, but a split. And you had the northern part that, that retained the name Israel, and they kept 10 tribes. And then you had the southern part that was called Judah, and they really only had two tribes, but they had Jerusalem, and they had the temple there. And so Israel, the northern part, they kind of set up some other alternative places of worship, except they used golden calves. It was like, didn't you remember that other story? Anyway, so, so the, when you read the prophets, the prophets rebuke the kings of that northern kingdom, Israel, pretty harshly because they have this long history of wickedness and of idolatry. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find a good king of that northern kingdom. Now, Judah, they do a little better. They've got the temple there. They do a little better. They have a few more good kings on the record than Israel does. But what happens to Israel is in 722 BC, the Assyrians come. And the Assyrians are brutal brutal captors. And, and, and the Assyrians come and they conquer this region. And instead of just kind of taking these uh, Israelites as prisoners, they actually scatter them. Their plan is to obliterate a people group. They're not just trying to conquer, they're trying to erase. 
And so they take these people and they scatter them into other regions, hoping that they'll intermarry and intermarry, and then the Jewish race will be erased. But what they, who they leave behind are all the lower, um, lower class, if you will, or the, or the lower dregs of society whom they considered to be the lower dregs. Of, they left behind the sick, the lame, the outcasts, the lepers. They left all those people behind and took the others and scattered them. And then not only that, they left those people behind and then they brought in other uh, people from other regions and forced them to sort of intermarry. Why? They were trying to scrub that region clean of its history. And so then, uh, you know, a couple hundred years later, Judah gets, gets invaded by Babylon, but Babylon's a little nicer. They take them as prisoners. And so Babylon takes the Jews from Judah as prisoners. And then after exile, some of these Jews begin to return. And imagine this, they return to Judah. They're rebuilding walls. That's the Nehemiah story. They rebuild the temple. That's the Ezra story. And then they look up to the north and they're like, oh my goodness, what is going on up there? This region is a mess. There's no faithful Israelite left. These are all the descendants of half-breeds, quote-unquote, and lowlifes. And so the Samaritans in their minds were unfaithful, low-life, half-breed rejects in their minds. And so these, these ones in the south who were trying to remain faithful considered Samaritans ones who were unfaithful and outcasts. And so by the time of the first century, there's quite a bit of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. But not only does John tell us that Jesus is, is going into Samaria but that he meets a Samaritan woman. What's it like to be a woman in the first century, even in the Jewish world? We know that in the wider world, women were treated as property, but in the Jewish world, it wasn't much better. Women could not work. They were dependent on a man. And a woman could not divorce a man, but a man could divorce a woman. So later on in the story, when we find out that she's had multiple husbands, you have to hear that through the lens, not of her choices, but of someone else's choices, right? This was a day that was very different than ours. Josephus, who's the first century Jewish historian, says, the law holds women to be inferior in all matters, and therefore women should be submissive. Sirach, which is a book from about 180 years before the time of Christ, said, it is, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is a woman who brings shame and disgrace. According to rabbinic tradition, a Jewish man prayed three blessings, three benedictions a day, one of which was a blessing that said, I thank God I'm not a woman. Shocking. One of the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day taught that a man could divorce her wife, his wife if she burned the dinner. Thank God that's not still practice for, for some of you, you know? <laughs> no looking at each other now. So she's a Samaritan and a woman, lowly regard. And then on top of that, she's come to the well at noon. Now that may be a detail that means nothing to us, but you don't go to wells, the center of town, in the heat of the day. If you grew up around the equator, as I did, or other parts of the world that are really hot, you try to avoid being out at the heat of the day. I mean, my, my mom would, would, would carry umbrellas, not for the rain, but for the sun. You know, if people don't want, they don't want to be out in the heat of the day. This woman is out at noon because she doesn't want to be seen. 
She's, she's trying to hide a disgrace and a shame. She's not looking to run into people. She's trying to just get some water and get out. And so what you see is this is not the story of a sinful, promiscuous woman. This is the story of a person from the lowest status of the most hated race in the worst town going through the toughest time of her life. That's what this story is about. A story from the lowest, a person from the lowest status of the most hated race in the worst town going through the toughest time of her life. And Jesus went to find her. Jesus came after her. And so as we look at this story, the first thing, I want to point out three things from this story. The first is this, that Jesus restored her dignity. He restored her dignity. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Christians are part of the group that oppresses women. Christians have always been, since Jesus, part of the movement to elevate and dignify and respect women. And it began with Jesus. She says to him, Jesus, she says, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are speaking to me? The mere dignity of addressing her was elevating to her. And not only addressing her, but he makes a request of her, something that arguably he should have just demanded of her. Now, some of you know this. In our world, there's still power differentials, although they're not as pronounced. But imagine your workplace, if your boss you know, someone who's your oversight, your manager or whatever, says something that really they could just order you to do because it's your job. But instead, they, they asked it as a question. Would you please put a cover on your TPS reports? You know? <laughs> <laughs> when they phrase it as a question, what does that question do? It gives you dignity. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, well, thanks for asking me instead of demanding it from me. Parents can do this with kids. Would you like to clean up your room? To which my, my younger children say, no, we would not like to. No, 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 no. it's not a true question. I'm being kind to you, <laughs> right? <laughs> but Jesus says, to, would you give me something to drink? He's dignifying her. Later in the story, she, tra- she refers to Jacob as her father as in tracing her ancestry to the Jewish patriarch, Jacob. Samaritans shouldn't trace their ancestry to the Jewish patriarch, Jacob. How dare you? And yet Jesus doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, well, I wouldn't be so quick to call Jacob your father. He says, okay, go ahead. He adds to her the sense of dignity that she actually belongs. And I imagine that this woman had been told so many other phrases that those tapes played loudly in her head. And so she can't help but blurt it out. Why, why are you actually even talking to me? In other words, I, I've been told my whole life I'm a dirty, rotten woman. I'm a lousy, outcast Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? What are the tapes that play in your head? Maybe when you come to church, God is mad and angry, and I'm a second-class Christian, and I'm a, and your whole life, maybe it was wounds from parents or people who said to you, you're a good for nothing. You're a screw up. You're, you always, you always mess things up. And even though that person is no more in your life, their voice still is. And you hear it over and over again. I, growing up in Malaysia, it was heartbreaking to hear the way some of my friend's parents talked to them. They bring home a bad grade on an exam, which is always a lot of pressure in exams in, in Asia. And, and, and a parent would just 
launch into this tirade against them. You stupid idiot, you good for nothing, you'll never be anything. And these were like respectable church people, doctors and lawyers, not like, you know, people, these are people who ought to know better, but it was, an, it was a habit in their way of talking. And I felt so blessed to have parents that never spoke to us like that, but I watched my friends endure that. And I think about what those wounds cause, the residual effect of that. Like this woman, good for nothing, outcast, you're a total mess. No man even really wants you. You're a reject. And Jesus says, hi, could I have some water? (gasps) And it almost makes her want to cry. How is it you're talking to me? Jesus restored her dignity. And then as the story goes on, verse 10 Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. And the woman's like, uh, listen, guy, how are you supposed to get water here? Verse 12, how are you? The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? And he gave, he gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. There is a well that provides water that, will, that is adequate for certain levels of need, but is not sufficient for the deeper levels of need. And Jesus said, you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. What a gift. Jesus says, I'm going to give you water that will actually produce a well in you that will bubble up. I'm going to give you something. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I'll never be thirsty and then I'll never need to come here to draw water again. Jesus is redirecting her desires. Jesus redirected her desires. You might even say that he awakened a deeper thirst in her. Here's what I think happens to us in life. We're born as creatures who are hungry and thirsty, longing for the love of God. And it's meant to be given to us through the first relationships in our life, our family. But so often what happens is it's not. And we fail to be given that. And then we start to forget about that thirst. We start to bury it. I don't really need that. No, I don't, I don't need love. I don't need affirmation. I don't need your approval. And to your friends, it looks like you're strong. But you know, it's not that you're strong. It's that you're numb. So you just, uh, what does it matter? Nobody needs this. I, I can't get this anyway. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago who's reflecting with me on, 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 on how many men he's encountered, adult men who never got a sense of validation from their own fathers. And he was saying to me, he said, I I think there's something here about a young boy as they're coming of age needing to hear from their father, you're strong and this is what your strength is for. And so they start to believe, okay, I'm strong, I can face the, and this is what my strength is for. 
And so what happens to so many men is they get older, but they don't actually become whole and, and, and mature. So they've aged without actually growing up. And then you find these men finding other ways to prove their strength, to test their strength, to explore what this strength could be used for. Maybe it's used, maybe it's ex expressed in ways of putting others down. Maybe it's expressed in ways in climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe it's expressed in ways of saying, I can make more, I can conquer more, I can climb more, I can achieve more, I can get to the top of this game. Or maybe it's seen in the number of sexual partners or relationships. I, look, look, look how strong I am. Because deep down there was a thirst for someone to say, you're strong, you can do this, and this is what your strength is for. And I imagine there are versions of that for women. Also needing to hear that they are strong, and, but maybe other unique aspects as well to say you are cherished, and you are capable, and you are resilient, longing for that. And maybe after year after year after year of nobody saying, you are valuable, you are a treasure, you are a gift to be cherished, you are lovely, you are, that there's either ways that you start to dig wells for yourself and to say, well, that's fine. I don't, I don't know about that, but I can just get this water and this water is good enough for now. And I wonder for us today, what are the wells that you've dug for yourself that are always going to leave you dry? Listen, there, there, there is a sense in which just like natural water, we need it. You got to drink water and you'll be thirsty again. And that's fine. And so there's a sense in which you need money, you need stuff, you need friendships, you need commitment. All of that stuff is good and, 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 and right so long as we don't confuse those things as being living water. Those are not the things that will ultimately satisfy. And Jesus, I think, with this woman is awakening in her a thirst that she's long forgotten about. And he's saying to her, look, this well is great. You need water. But, but I want to talk to you about something that I can give you that no well can give you. I want to talk to you about a water that no other relationship, no other person, no other situation, no job, no station, no work, nothing in life can, can actually satisfy that deepest thirst that you have. And this is what Jesus is offering to us today. Something deeper, something stronger, something that produces a well inside of us. And then as the story goes on in verse 16, Jesus says to her, uh, go and get your husband and come back here. And the woman replied, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five. And the man you're with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. And the woman goes on and she says, oh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she starts to ask him a question, which I don't think is a red herring. I think it's actually a genuine uh, desire to say, okay, so where do I worship? Here or Jerusalem? What, what do I do? And Jesus talks to her about being a worshiper in spirit and in truth. But at the end of that conversation, she says, well, okay, but one day the Messiah will come and he'll sort all this out. And then Jesus says, okay, let me just say it. I am the Messiah. I mean, isn't it amazing? Early in John's gospel, before Peter confesses you are the Christ, a Samaritan woman hears Jesus reveal his 
identity. What a gift to this woman. She says, oh, you are the Christ. There's something particular about wells. This is not just a story that could have happened anywhere. John tells us this story took place at a well, and not just any well, but Jacob's well. Because well stories are a, uh, a, a famous motif in Jewish storytelling. It's a famous trick. You know motifs when you watch movies? Think of 1990s romantic comedies. You know, they all kind of have a certain template for how the story goes. Uh, this unlikely man and woman meet each other. They start to fall in love. Then they discover something deeply troubling, like in my favorite, uh, You've Got Mail, where she discovers, you're the guy from FOX books, you know. You're putting me out of business. And then they go through, they, they somehow figure out a way through that crisis. And then at the very end of the movie, you know, I was hoping it was you, you know, best rom-com of all time. But you kind of know. You know where this story is going. It's like it's got a template to it, right? Unless it's a postmodern movie, then there's no templates, and they're awful. I hate those movies. <laughs> right? But wells are, have a particular motif. In the Old Testament, when Abraham is looking for a wife for his son Isaac, he sends his servant. And his servant goes and asks, finds a well, asks the woman uh, there to get him a drink and to, to take care of his camels and all this stuff. And the woman does it. And something about the way she drew the bucket, I guess, Abraham's servant was like, that's the one for Isaac, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. And then later on when Isaac and Rebekah, their son Jacob, Jacob's looking to find uh, a wife for himself. He comes, and the story we heard it in the Old Testament reading, it's really kind of a funny story because it tells us there's this well with a huge stone, and usually it, it took a group of shepherds to uncover, you know, to move the stone to uncover the well. But Jacob sees Rachel, and he's like, watch this. This <laughs> is, which way to the gym, you know? It rolls the stone up, and then, and then he's the one giving a drink to everyone, you know, taking care. It's like he's just trying to really, really impress. And then he, and then he kisses her, which is a heck of a first date. Um, <laughs> and then he has to wait 14 years. You know, you know the, the rest of the story. And this is Jacob's well. And John is telling us all of these details on purpose. Because wells are where good men find worthy women to join them in God's blessed story. That's kind of the motif. Good men find worthy women who will join them in God's story of blessing. Remember, God blesses Abraham. I'm going to bless you and your family, and through your family, all families will be blessed. Guess what that blessing requires? A family. So Isaac's like, need a wife. Jacob's like, need a wife, right? And they got to continue this story. Wells are this place where we expect good men to find worthy men, women to join them in the church. So when you hear John's setup, you're cringing already. You're like, Jacob's well. Oh, I love this. Jesus, well, okay, Jesus is going to get married. I mean, what's, how's this going to work out here? And then, and then you're like, and then he meets a Samaritan woman. And you're like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> so, like, Jesus, don't you be hanging out with that. What? And then you realize, no, this is not about Jesus' love life. This is about the love of God that restores and mends the brokenhearted. 
This is about how Jesus finds a person who's been used and used up. When Jesus says to her, it's true, the one you're with is not your husband. You're just desperate now for someone to care for you, but you've had five husbands. That's not a way of saying you're promiscuous. That's a way of saying you've had five men mistreat you. You've had five men use you and use you up. You've had five men reject you. You've had five men abuse you. And this is Jesus saying, but today your story changes. Today your story changes. And so Jesus doesn't just restore her dignity and redirect her desires. Jesus reshapes her destiny. Jesus changes her destiny. He changes it. And this is why the woman says in verse 28, the woman put down her water jar and went into the city and she said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? It changed her destiny. Now she goes from being sort of the outcast to being the evangelist. She's like the first evangelist. Who knows? A group of followers now from her town because of this encounter. Listen, guys, if we didn't believe that Jesus actually changes destinies, then we're just playing games every Sunday morning. We're not here just to sing cute songs and feel good and socialize with friends. We're here because we believe Jesus alters the trajectory of lives. Jesus puts the brokenhearted back together. Jesus changes the course of lives. We believe that. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. This isn't cutesy religious stuff. This isn't nice Jesus stories. This is how the person from the lowest status of a hated race in the worst town going through the worst time of their life sees Jesus and is different. This morning, as the worship team comes, I want to create a little space for us this morning to meet with Jesus to encounter Jesus, to let this story come alive for you today. And maybe you're here and you'd say, you know, I, I, I've never really thought about Jesus in that way. I've just sort of thought of this as like Bible stories and churchy stuff and religious, you know, good, good people. But you've never really experienced Jesus as a living Christ who is speaking to you who's calling you, who went through Samaria to find you. That's why Jesus had to go to Samaria, because she was there, because she was there. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've just, you've, it's never been that personal for you. Would you just take a moment and Allow the Lord to show himself to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. To say, no, 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 no. That's not just for Jim and Susie. and that, That's for you. This is, this is the Jesus who came for you. Not just disciples and whoever you think are holy people. This is Jesus who came for you. What are the wells that you've been drinking from? What are the places that you've 
used to kind of bury your deeper longings and your deeper thirst. The way that your own heart has become numb. Don't believe the lie that Jesus has forgotten about you. Don't believe the lie that that's for everybody else, not for me. Right here today, the word of the Lord has come to you. Jesus wants to change the trajectory of your life. Jesus wants to change your destiny. Jesus wants to give you living water. He said, if you knew who was standing here, you would ask him for a drink. I think that's what we should do today. Say, Jesus, I know who you are now, so give me a drink, please. Quench my thirst, Jesus. Fill the longings of my heart, Jesus. Jesus, you're not just some other religion or some other God or some other. You are the fountain of living water. Jesus, give me a drink today. You can ask that this morning can ask for that today. So right where you are, if you would, just kind of open up your hands, open up your palms. Brian, we're just going to sing that simple chorus, come Lord Jesus, come. And just take a moment and ask him to renew you. Ask him to quench your deepest thirst. Come Lord Jesus, Sing it. 
If you're thirsty for the Lord this morning, just stand and sing it. Cheers.